Good morning. Good morning, Rabbi Welcome to Breakfast in the Class. Breakfast in the Class today is dedicated in loving memory of Sam Yisayed, Alev HaShalom. Li'ilui Nishmat Shalom Oben sponsored by his son, Isaac Syed. As well, the week of cold brew is also dedicated by uh, Isaac Syed in loving memory of his father, uh, Shilomo Ben Rivka. Hazaku Baruch. My friends, I want to share with you a very interesting uh, line in the Torah. So we are very fond of trying to find in our Torah and in, in our learning, we're interested in trying to find HaKadosh Baruch Hu's messages. Sometimes we have a whole class that will come from one word, an extra word. Sometimes a class that comes from an extra letter. Today, I want to share with you a beautiful idea from Matok Ha'or, uh, a class or an idea that comes from not even a letter, one little tiny bit of nikuda. The Pasuk says that Avraham Avinu went, where was he trying to travel to? Eretz Kenan. Right? And where does he get to? Eretz Kenan. But for some weird reason, when he gets to the place that he was traveling to, it spells it differently. Now, for Seferadim, how do you say something that has a kamatz? And how do you say something that has a patah? Sounds the same almost. The difference, it's very minor. With the Ashkenazim, it's a and it's o. It's very distinct. Our kamas is very different when it's followed by a shiva, then it's, a, then it's a markedly different. But there's a difference, even if it's subtle, between the two. The question is, why did the Torah in the same pasuk say, Abraham is going to Eretz Kena'an and he comes to Eretz Kena'an? Why change? And he says something remarkable. One of the tests of Abraham Avinu was that God said, go to this land, travel this land, it's going to be amazing. Right? It's going to be amazing. He gets to this amazing land. Take it away, Gabby. Oh. What does he say? I've just tried to say it like they would say it back then, but that's for sure not how they said it. Huh? Okay. What does he share with us? He gets to the land, and what's missing? What happens there? Instead of it being a, a land full of plenty, what is it? Starvation. Starvation. Where he was traveling to was patah, was open. Where he arrives is kamas. What does kamas mean? Where something is squished, where something is uh, uh, trampled, where something is very tight. Where the, the tree, the, the trees, the fruits, nothing was being given. The skies were, uh, right, were closed. In, a, in the Hebrew language, we know there's a word for when the Kohen Gadol, when the Kohen, excuse me, takes for a mincha with his hand. What is that called? He would take comets. So what does he do? He takes his thumb like this and his pinky like this, okay? And he only has what's left in the middle of his hand. So kamatz is when someone is squeezing the hands closed. So Abraham was heading to this land that was supposed to be open and wide and beautiful. And he gets to a place where the skies are tight, where the earth is closed, where there's no food, where there's a famine. And yet Abraham manages to survive, not to complain, not to ask questions, not to say, Hashem, what are you doing to me? Etc., etc., etc. But what powers Abraham's emunah? How does Abraham go through one test after the next, after the next, without being discouraged? How is his emunah intact? Abraham is called in the Zohar, Razin de Ma'aminin. What does that mean? Razin is the prince He's the prince of those who believe. What, what, is, what made him the prince of Emunah? What a title, by the way. 
Could you imagine being called the Prince of Emunah? I don't know, have a t-shirt like that? I don't know, maybe some merch? Right? The answer, my friends, is, is, uh, is actually it's a beautiful idea. You know, the Midrash brings, on the beginning of the parasha, Lecha Hashem Hashem speaks to Abraham. So it's just interesting to note that the opening line from God to Abraham differs from the opening line from God to Noah. And we've discussed this in various iterations. What is the opening line from God to Noah? And Elohim speaks to Noah. That means before any previous conversations have been had, before any conversations, before any relationship is built, who is the God that introduces himself to Noah? Elohim. The God of judgment. God in his midah of deen, of judgment. Who is the God that introduces himself to Avraham Avinu with the sticker smiley face? Hello, my name is Yudke Vavke. God introduces himself in the midah of Abrahamim, of kindness, of mercy. Why does Noah get introduced to the God of judgment and Avraham get introduced to the God of mercy? Now, if you tell me that uh, that was their relationship, fine. But this is the first conversation. So why did God choose to do so in one way, in one instance, and choose to do the other in the other instance? Much of the ensuing uh, history that plays out after that is in part due to that relationship. Our rabbis tell us that Noah did not pray for the people of his generation. And it always bothered me. Why? Why did Noah pray for the people of his generation? He's a Sadiq. And part of the answer is that Noah did not understand that he could pray for the people of his generation. Because the God he knew was a God called Elohim. It was judgment. They deserved it. They were supposed to die. What place is there for me to be able to pray to that God, so to speak? But when Abraham sees the people of Sodom, who also deserve to die, they also deserve to be destroyed. Abraham doesn't hesitate, not even for a second. He's praying, he's bargaining. Why? Because with the God of Rahamim, with Hashem and Midat Rahamim, his hands are open to accept everybody. Even if you made all sorts of mistakes, Yud Gimel Midot Rahamim, God has 13 different attributes. He's got like, you know, Baskin Robbins has 31 flavors of ice cream. Hashem has 13 flavors of Rahamim. So no matter how bad the person is, there's a place to pray. So Avram comes and he says, what about, don't please, don't get angry, don't be upset. What about this? What if there's 50? What if there's 40? What if there's 30? Do I hit 20? Do I hit 10? Avram opens Sotheby's. Sold. So the question is why? If such drastically different outcomes came out of that relationship, why did God choose to introduce himself to Noah as Elohim? And the answer is very powerful. And it has a tremendous amount of impact and import for our own lives and as well for our own relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. You see, Noah didn't discover God. Noah always knew about God. Noah's, uh, Noah was raised by tzaddikim. Metushelach. He lived in the generation of Metushelach, of Chanoch. These were the people that he was surrounded by. These were the 
not only Gidolim, not only the righteous people, but our, uh, our mystical sources tell us that when Chanoch was taken early, before his time from this world, he winds up becoming one of the greatest and most powerful Malachim in the heavens. So this is Noah's family. I can understand what I mean. Who's your grandfather? Oh, he's one of the Malachim in the Shamaim. Who's grandpa? He's right over there flying. That's like, right? Wild. So when someone is born into uh, a relationship with Hashem, oftentimes they forget about the fact that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is kind, is merciful, is loving. Because their relationship is one of exactitude, of halakha, of doing the right thing. So when you're raised religious, everything that you know about, what is it about? What you're supposed to do, what you're not supposed to do, mabisir, right, wrong, right? It's a very exacting relationship. And in some ways, it's a very high relationship. But the flip side of that is sometimes you can forget. You think you see a person who's wicked, and because you didn't grow up that way, you write them off and you say, this guy, no hope. But you're forgetting. You're forgetting that there's a Borei Olam out there that has a space in his heart for, for this person. And that our forefathers, that Abraham comes from Terach. You know, we have in our past a story that starts that way, that ends in a very beautiful way. And whether the amount of time Abraham spent as an Oved Abu Dazara, according to one opinion, is three years, or whether according to another opinion, Machloket already, from the time of the Tanaim, whether it was 40 years, but whatever the case is, says the Pasuk, Hashem says, I forgive you, I forgive you like the dew of your youth, just as the dew dissipates. When the sun rises, it disappears and you can't see it, and there's no left memory, you can't see it at all, so too I forgive the sins of your youth. That's what Hashem says to Abraham. But it's hard for someone who grows up in the house of Mitushelach, in the house of Chanuch, to think that way, to see someone that way, to see possibilities for somebody else that way. But Abraham Avinu, he found God in a very different way. Listen very carefully. Our Midrash tells us, he looks, he's walking along the way and he sees a bira. He tzitz al habira. He looks at this uh, bira. He looks at this fire. He looks at this home. Different interpretations, okay? And he sees, he says, who made this? And when he asks the question, who made this? The Baal Habira comes out and says, I'm the Baal Habira. I'm, I built this. I made this. It was me. The rabbis explain that because Abraham Avinu came from Terah, he had to figure out, Terah was over Abu Dazarah, he had to find God by himself. So he went on a mental journey that preceded his physical journey. And his mental journey was, if I see something, I ask, what made that thing? Where did it come from? The Midrash describes a story about Abraham Avinu that many of us know, not from the Torah, but from fairy tales. He saw the sun and he said, wow, the sun must be the most powerful thing in the world. The sun must be the God of the entire world. And then the clouds come and block the sun. Oh, it must be the clouds. They're even stronger than the sun. So the clouds are the God. But then the clouds were blown away by the wind. The wind is the God, right? You remember that? Remember that story, the stone cutter? And then it's the mountain, right? It said the mountain stops the clouds. Well, it stops the wind. But the point is, Abraham Avinu saw a chain. And he realized that there must be, as described in Harambam, 
There must be a chain of command. Something must have made that something. It could not have made itself. It had to be, there had to be what's called a Matsui Rishon. Something that was first found. What was that? And he traced it back, traced it back, traced it back until he found a power that would animate everything. A power that had created everything. But if God had created everything, there had to have been a vacuum within which there was nothing. And Avram asks the most important question of all as described in Ramchal. The most important question. If God is sitting in nothing, what motivates God to create anything? Why would an infinite being who cannot receive anything from anybody because he's infinite, you can't add one to infinity, what could God have to gain from creating, from creation? In that moment, Avraham met the God of Yud Kevavke, of kindness and of mercy. Avraham understood that there's only one reason why Hashem would create the world, and that was Olam Chesed Yibaneh. He builds the world only for Chesed. He could only have one purpose as an infinite being, and that is to give. God could only have built the world to be able lehetiv elea to give to it. Now you understand why his introduction was to Yud Vavke and Noach's to Elohim. Now you understand why Abraham can pray for Sodom. Now you understand why Abraham Avinu's core midah is the midah of Chesed. Because he's trying to come close to that God. And how do you do that if not for what the Torah calls the mitzvah of Hidamut? You want to stick to God? You can't stick to God. He is Esh Ochla. He is an all-consuming fire. How do you get close to God? By imitating, by mimicking his ways. And what way did Abraham see in God? What way did he know of God? He knew the road of Chesed. Rav Shach says an amazing story. There's a God-forsaken village in the middle of nowhere. All right? No one comes. It's the place that time forgot. Around the turn of the Industrial Revolution, okay, these people are walking back and forth. They have horses, they have donkeys. And all of a sudden, one day, some people come to town and they're all holding long metal sticks. And they say, what are you doing? They say, oh, we're laying the tracks. They say, laying the tracks for what? They said, oh, a train. What's a train? Oh, it's this very big, powerful thing. Uh, like imagine a big metal box with wheels on the bottom. They know boxes. They know wheels. Okay, box with wheels, we get it. And then what do you do with the box of wheels? We put stuff in it, we put people in it, and we can take them great distances. Anyway, one of the guys calls over the, uh, the track layers and he's like, I think you're making a terrible mistake. He says, what do you mean? He says, well, you're laying down the tracks like this, but uh, any, you know, if you're gonna have these boxes with wheels, if they're gonna be pulled, you know, you're gonna need a team of horses. So I've done a quick calculation, you'd probably need at least you know, seven horses abreast, you know, side by side, maybe three or four rows deep, you know, judging by the fact you tell us there's trains with 10 cars, just the sheer weight of it, I'm talking about, you know, there's no way the horses can't run in these lines. And the guy says, Roy, <laughs> uh, forgive me, but it doesn't run on horse. It runs on the horsepower. <laughs> it doesn't run on horses, he says. It runs on steam. He goes, he, he, he runs on steam. How does it manage it in a teapot and the, 
He goes, yeah, we have the thing, we put in the coal, da, 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 the steam, the pressure, the pressure pulls the thing, explains all the guy says, impossible. A bunch of liars, what do you think, you're alchemists, you're gonna turn steam into horses, impossible, you're crazy. They, they can't believe it, but the train is actually coming the next week. So they take the two smartest guys in the town and they tell them, look, we're putting you in charge of unmasking the secret of this big, uh, of this train that they keep talking about. We need you to figure it out. And tell us how it works. Anyway, they go there, they dress up, each one of them puts on, uh, you know, brown, little, you know, light brown blankets, and they blend into the sand, they put grass on top of themselves, and they're sitting there recon like this with their binoculars and telescopes, and as the train passes, they analyze, they analyze, they analyze. For three days, the trains are going back and forth, right? And they're gathering data. They come back and everyone gathers in the big, uh, in the big uh, arena, in the town hall. And the two important scientists from this godforsaken shtetl stand up and they say, we've actually, we haven't worked out the whole problem, but we have it 90% figured out. And the guy says, okay, explain what, you know, could maybe explain to us in terms that we can understand. And the man says, well, we looked at the last car in the train and we went on top of it, and we went under it. We even, one time, lied down in the middle of the tracks to look underneath, and we can say definitively that there were no horses in the last car. And in this, that was in the tenth car. In the ninth car, no horses. Eighth, no, seventh, nothing. Sixth, nothing. Fifth, fourth, third, second, what? Right? All the things, from the tenth car till the second car. We have figured them out, there's no horses, they are not pulling themselves. And the guy says, okay, well, what about the front car? What about the car? You know, the guy says, that's the 10% we haven't figured out yet. <laughs> so we've got it 90% figured out, 10%, but I mean, you can't, I mean, that's pretty good that we have it 90% figured out. My friends, this idea that we have in our brains, that we have the universe 90% figured out, because it rains here because of a high pressure system, the winds over there and the, you know, and the rising of the, you know, of the, of the, uh, of the water that causes the, you know, the, the, the uh, evaporation of the water to rise up into the clouds. This kind of clouds, that kind of clouds. We figured it all out. 90% we got to figure it out. But mi bara ele. What's in the first car? What made the thing that made the things? You tracked it all the way back. You want to even call it names. You want to call it a theory, you want to call it, great, amazing. But where did that come from? What caused the first thing? Where did these elements begin? Where did the primordial soup, who made the primordial soup? Right, just a primordial soup Nazi, where did that come from? Do you understand, my friends? This question forced Avraham to a hakara, to a recognition. That if I trace these things back, ultimately I'm left with only one answer to the equation, and that is Borei Olam, God. How God chose to run creation, I don't care. You want to tell me He did it in a, you know, in a, in a straightforward creation fashion, great. You want to tell me He did it in some other form, you know, or some other process, even if it made it, He made it look like some evolving process, I don't care. Ultimately, it's Borei Olam that created. Ultimately, it's Borei Olam that created Yesh Me'ayin. To get from zero to one, you still needed God. And if that was the case, my friends, and here's the point, if that is the case, then ultimately, Avraham Avinu, his process is a process of looking back. I look back and I work out 
that that could not have happened without Hashem. And once I see God over there, I know that it's not just God pulling the first car of the train, it's God pulling the second and the third. What about the fourth? Fourth also. Fifth? How about the tenth? Also the tenth. However many cars you attach to this, they're all Hashem. If anything in this world is attached to something that came before it in this world, if a person is born to parents, those parents came from somewhere. A person does really well in business. Yes, but you did well in business with money that was given to you from someone. Uh, that money that was given to him, it was given to him by someone. The resources that you're developing, the earth that you're mining for oil or for diamonds, doesn't make a difference. Whatever it is that you're doing in this world, you are doing with things that were given to you that existed in a prior form. And the minute a person starts to see things, starts to see things that way, then what happens? Then Avraham Avinu, he, he's told to go to the land of Canaan, he gets there, and, and it's Kamatz. He understands, it's Borei Olam. Because there isn't anything that isn't Borei Olam. So he comes, he's trying to do the Akedah, and there's a big, there's a big river. Avraham walks right in the river, no problem. You know why? Because there ain't no river. Ain't no mountain, right? Ain't no, what's the third one? Valley. There's no valley that's deep enough. You know why? There's no river deep enough because there's no mountain high enough because they came close to the mountain of HaKadosh Baruch Hu and Moshe ascends into the heavens from the mountain. There's no place where you cannot get through when you have that understanding of God. Most of us, our emunah doesn't live here, it lives here. And because it lives here, in many ways, there's times when we get so emotionally overwhelmed that there isn't space in our heart for emunah, and that's when we have doubt. But when a person builds everything upon the notion that it's all God, there's never a situation that they can't overcome. And indeed, Avraham Avinu has 10 tests and he aces them all. Because ultimately, at the end, no matter how complicated the answer is, it's just Hashem. You ever see somebody comes to you with a complicated life problem? You know, I'm, I have to, I, my business is going bankrupt. Okay, so maybe you could declare, I can't declare bankruptcy because of this. But, but if you do that, then, what, then I'm not going to be able to make the alimony payments. I'm going to take my stepchildren away from me. But what about if they take the children away from me? Then I'm going to lose my part. Like one problem, after the next problem, after the next problem. After, and you know what? It's so complex, there's no way out. But what if all of it was Borei Olam and a person could actually relax and do their very best and understand that at the end of the day, after they've done their best, there's nothing more that they could do and be at peace with that and understand that wherever that took them, then that was the plan and that was the road and that's where they needed to go. I want to end with this last line from the Pasuk. The Pasuk says that as Abraham travels, and he went on his journeys, and the Pasuk says, to the place, Asher, the place that he had planted, Aholo, the places that he had pitched his tent. Some of you may remember this Pasuk. What does it mean, Vayelech lemasa'av? He went to his journeys, to the place where he pitched his tent. Rashi quotes the Gemara that says, Torah chozeret alachsan yashela. You know, I came when I was a nobody, and that guy invited me for dinner. Now I'm a somebody, now I'm a Fortune 500 you know, CEO, I come back to town and everyone wants to wine and dine me. I'm going to call the guy who invited me for Shabbat when I was a nobody. That's the guy I want to go back to. So Abraham goes back to those people, but Rashi adds one comment. 
He went back to those places that hosted him and he gave them back what they had given him. He had no money on that journey down. And now he came back flush with cash. And he went back to every person that had let him sleep for free and had let him eat for free and let him take, uh, take care uh, of, his, of his animals, uh, you know, with their, with their fodder. And he paid them all back, one by one by one by one. My friends, that's not only teaching you that when you go through a rough time and someone extends a hand, that you should go back into your history when you can, find those people and pay them back. That's one lesson, a practical lesson. You've now made it, someone gave you a leg up 20 years ago, go back to the guy and says, look, 20 years ago, you helped me. You'll be surprised, by the way, how many times the person who helped you back then now is in a position that they could really use your help. Lesson number one, but deeper lesson. Abraham went to all the places where he had to eat for free, where he couldn't afford, and he paid them back. A person who goes through life with emunah, at a later stage in their life, they can go back to those occurrences which seemed to be a place where they had no money and they had no etzot and everything was terrible. And they could pay that person back. And then they realize that each one of those stops along the route was something that developed them and built them in the most beautiful of ways. Going back to those stops where you had to eat for free and you suddenly realize how special they were and you could pay back that debt because it is indeed a debt that you owe to each one of those occurrences, to each one of those nisyonot, to each one of those hosts. Baruch Adonai Le'olam. Amen. Amen. Rabbi Chananya.